Good morning. We are in a brand new series here at our church uh, entitled The King Has Come, and we are going through uh, what we would call the birth narrative of Jesus according to the Gospel of Matthew. So I invite you to turn your Bible to Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. And as we jump in there, what we're going to notice as we look at the life of faithful Christians throughout history uh, is the reality of unexpected events. Like you have this, you have them in your life. Uh, we through, see through history where people who love God, who are called according to his purposes, often have unexpected events in their life. Uh, and what matters isn't that they do have them, it's that how they respond to these events uh, in faith. We see that even in Hebrews 11. In verses 8 through 10, it talks about uh, a character that you and I are very familiar with in Abraham. It says in verse 8, By faith Abraham obeyed, in Hebrews 11, uh, when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. So we already see in history uh, one of the patriarchs in Abraham who had a call and a command in an uncertain situation, an unexpected situation, to go to a place that he didn't even know he was going. Uh, and we look at his life uh, on this side of history and say, well, that was perfect. That's exactly how it should have gone. Uh, but and you put yourself in his sandals uh, and you look and say, you're telling me to go to a place I don't know. You're telling me to take my family to a land that you ain't even going to tell me right now. Uh, and that you're going to do all these great things when I have all these great things right here. Right? You, you need to see uh, that when we talk about the Bible, when you hear pastors preach about the Bible, you may say things like, well, they, think it, they just make it sound so simple. Right? They just make it sound like uh, anybody can do this. And when you read scripture, you see, well, God does these crazy things that makes it pretty obvious that they should do those things. But here's something that isn't really obvious. Hey, here's your life. Abraham, here's how things are going. Uh, here's uh, your life's going great, but I want you to leave here because I got bigger plans. I've got other things I want you to do. Uh, but as a matter of fact, you're not going to see the fruition of them. Uh, you're just going to be kind of the, the forefather, right? You're going to be the, the one who, who in, in institutes and creates a foundation for all the things to happen. Go for it. Right? You, you see that it's not so simple, even in those times, to follow God faithfully. But the necessity of the response was still the same, and it was by faith Abraham obeyed. You see, history is full of God moving through unexpected events in the lives of people whose responsibility it is to simply be faithful, to simply respond in faith. Now, the reason we bring this up and the reason we see this in a text and that we're preaching it this morning is because failing to respond in faith to God's unexpected events could truly cause you yourself to miss out on God's will in your life. And that's where we find so many people that live in our world today that find themselves missing out on God's will in their lives simply because they're not willing to take an unexpected event or, or their life in general and by faith obey God and his word. And so what we want to do this morning is to simply look at this a case study in Matthew 1, specifically in the life of Joseph, and learn how can you respond to unexpected events in a way that honors the Lord, the way that inserts you, which is God's will, into his will to walk faithfully according to God's word. And here's why, because unexpected events are often God's providential way of revealing his plan. I mean, that's usually how it works. Uh, mode of operation in God's economy is there's a lot of things that happen that are God's unexpected events in our lives. And so what we have to learn how to do is not to uh, dismiss them, not to get the benefit of the doubt but for the rest of people, when you don't walk in an unexpected event faithfully, because, of course, it is an unexpected event. Why, you know, if I don't walk in faithfulness to an unexpected event, no one's going to call me on it because it was just so unexpected. Right? Those are two things we do. And what we need to do is take the third option, which is simply walk faithfully in unexpected events according to God's will so that you will walk in God's will in your life. Because if there is anyone who should have and would have received the benefit of the doubt when it comes to walking in the will of God's unexpected events, it would have been Joseph. And in the same way, on this side of history, we would have looked at Joseph and said, you fool, 
Like, look what you look what you missed out on. Look what you could look at what you were supposed to do. You were supposed to be the father of Jesus, the king. You see, we wouldn't give him the benefit of the doubt. But we would, and we do, often give ourselves the benefit of the doubt when it comes to God's unexpected events. So, as we look at Matthew 1, let's learn how to faithfully walk amidst uncertainty. Look at Matthew 1, starting in verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. That is, the birth, that Greek word genesis, right? The genesis of Jesus undertones of the Genesis account in, in Genesis chapter 1, as we see in uh, Matthew 1 and verse 1 and Matthew 1.18, when it uses that same word for the birth, the beginning, the Genesis. Here's how the King of Kings came about here on earth. Here's how the incarnation of our Savior happened and transpired here on earth. The birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, I want you to notice something in Matthew's account of the birth narrative. It is in uh, the point of view of Joseph. And you need to write that in your notes because it's important as you become a student of the Word of God that you notice what the writers are doing. Uh, This uh, account in Matthew is written from the perspective and the point of view of Joseph, not Mary. Now, there's a reason for that in this, uh, in this gospel of Matthew, uh, because you do see in the gospel of Luke, in the only other birth narrative account, it is in the point of view of Mary. And so when you see something like that differ in the gospels, you need to, you need to ask yourself, why? Why is it different? What's the purpose? And so you need to jot that down because there is a purpose that as we look at this, we're talking about Joseph. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. This whole context is important for you to understand. uh, If we're going to understand the whole virgin birth, uh, the uh, betrothal, and the storyline of the birth of Christ, and one of the things you need to understand is simply this. When it says that Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, we need to understand a little bit of the context of a first century betrothal. A first century betrothal, you can't, at least initially, compare it to an engagement. Right? We're engaged, there's a plan to be married, but that's really where the similarities end. Uh, because more than our engagements that can be easily created and dissolved, uh, a betrothal was a legal arrangement. And this legal arrangement usually lasted for around a year. Now, another difference between our engagements and a first century betrothal in Israel was this. The, the woman stayed living with her mother and father. And so there is actually not a lot of contact between man and woman for the whole year of that betrothal. Until uh, on the wedding day, it was a public uh, legal uh, Fiasco? What am I trying to? What is it? A public legal situation, and uh, from there they would go publicly, and they would take them to the home of the husband, and they would take them, and they would go, and they would come together. They would consummate the marriage, and that's how how it usually work. Now, although that may not be unlike engagements even today, another really important part of marriage and engagements and betrothals in the first century was simply this. And you see it in verse 19. It was no simple, I'm engaged to you, because it actually says in verse 19, and her husband, Joseph. And so although they had not yet had a public ceremony of their marriage, in the first century context, a betrothal was a marriage. They were already husband and wife, just not with a lot of the benefits that go with being a husband and a wife. And so we see that here to understand the context of this. This isn't just, hey, I can go flippantly uh, dissolve this engagement and we can move forward. Uh, Because he was the husband of Mary, there had to be a formal uh, divorce. And that's why it says in verse 19, and her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. And so we see in verse 19, if you look at verse 19, 
Joseph, a just man, and it says that because what it means is not simply that he did the right thing or he followed the rules. It means that he was a man of the law, that Joseph was a man who followed the laws of God, both in the justice of God and in the mercy of God, which oftentimes in our culture, we misconstrue being a person of the law, right? We call people legalists or we call people, which they could be, of course. Uh, We talk about being a man of the law and we make that in a negative connotation, but Joseph being a man of the law meant that this, that he was a man of justice and a man of mercy. And so you see that even in the life of him finding out that his uh, betrothed wife was found to be pregnant, that he didn't, as was legal to do, uh, publicly shame Mary and send her out and publicly divorce her. But he tried to figure out, even before uh, the angel of the Lord had come to him, said, you know what, I want to resolve to divorce her, her quietly. I want, to, I want to send her away quietly. Uh, because he had no, I mean, to him, on his shoulders, there was no pressure. All the pressure was on her being found to be with child. And so instead of that, being a merciful man, which even Jesus says it in Matthew 5, 7, blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. It was part of the law to be a merciful human being and a merciful person. So, We see him being a merciful person, trying to figure out what to do in his own unexpected situation. And so we see in Scripture, God's mode of operation often includes these unexpected situations in yours and I's life, and in the life of Joseph, in the life of Abraham, in the life of the patriarchs, and all throughout history, we see that God often uses unexpected events, and our job is to not be caught off guard with God's unexpected events. So put this as number one on your outline. You need to plan for God's unexpected events. You need to plan for God's unexpected events. When we look at verses 18 through 20, uh, we see uh, two a young couple, two people who had the rest of their lives ahead of them, making a lot of plans in their lives, as most newlyweds will do. And probably the family looking forward, saying, we're going to have two kids. Uh, we're going to have we're going to have a little a little dog. Uh, we're going to have a little picket fence overlooking the old city of David. It's going to be really great, you and me, Mary. Um, and instead, we see God uh, intervening in time and history and time and space and looking at them and saying, here's an unexpected event that I'm asking you to walk faithfully in to the Lord. And so this is where they find themselves. And for you and for me, it should remind us that we need to plan for God's unexpected events in our lives because none of us are going to be exempt from unexpected events that God would place in our lives. Now, I would like to uh, juxtapose this, or I I guess, or uh, contrast this from your unexpected events because of sin, right, and unexpected events that God providentially puts in your place, right? I mean, of course, you can create all kinds of unexpected chaos in your life simply because you won't follow God, and you sin, uh, and there are consequences for that. But even outside of that, there are plenty of unexpected events that happen in line with the providence of God in our lives that we ought to handle appropriately by walking in the wisdom of the Lord. Let me give you one example of that in Acts 16. Turn your Bible to Acts chapter 16. We're going to find a scenario quite similar to one that maybe we could, you and I could... uh, have in our life, and of course, something of this nature will happen in our lives uh, undoubtedly as God uses unexpected events to move us to great faithfulness to him. You see this in Paul's first missionary journey in chapter 16, verse 6, and it says, and they went through the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia. Now, undoubtedly, this had not to do with the fact that the Holy Spirit stood in front of them and said, you're forbidden to go to, to Asia. As a matter of fact, there was probably some unforeseen and unexpected events that had kept them from going where they wanted to go to Asia. And so God had intervened with unexpected events. And so they uh, chalked it up to this is what God wants us to do. So therefore, in verse 7, when they had come up to Mysia, they attempted to go to Bithynia. But the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. Another reference to the idea that the the Spirit had done something. There was unexpected events going, undoubtedly practical events that happened that kept them from going where they were planning on going. And then a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing there urging him, saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. And when Paul had seen the vision, immediately he sought to go to Macedonia. Look into this. Listen to this. 
concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. You see, all these unexpected events were happening. Uh, and, of course, not all of us, you know, not, we don't get to receive visions like Paul of the will of God. But uh, even in this dream, when a man was there, he came to the conclusion that God must want me to go over there and do ministry. God must want me to go over there and make disciples. God must want me to go over there and preach the gospel. And as a matter of fact, you get to a few verses after that, and what do you find? You find Paul and his companions going over to Macedonia, going to a town called Philippi, sharing the gospel with a woman named Lydia. And she responds to the gospel of Jesus Christ, turns from her sins, trusts in Christ, and she, her home becomes a kingdom outpost for future gospel advancement. As a matter of fact, it was so fruitful that you and I have a letter in our Bible called the church, or the letter to the Philippians, simply because they understood that God works through unexpected events, and our responsibility is to follow them. And on top of that, to show you how unexpected it was, uh, as Paul and his companions were attempting to go to Bithynia, you need to understand uh, on a map, Bithynia is in the northeast part of Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. Uh, where Macedonia was, was to the northwest of Asia Minor. And so you have this massive discrepancy of where they were going and where God was calling them to go, which happens to be in our own lives. We're trying to go one way, and God wants us to go to a whole other way. And there are a lot of reasons why Paul and his companions could have said, you know, it's just too hard. This is what we were planning on doing. Let's just stick with that because that was the original plan versus them saying, I am going to understand that I've got a plan that God is going to do this from time to time, and I need to come up with a plan to begin planning for unexpected events that God places in my life. So I'll give you two ways that you can start planning for unexpected events in your life. And here's what you're going to need. Two things. One, you're going to need a yes, and one, you're going to need a no. Okay? You're going to need a yes, and you're going to need a no. Uh, and these are going to be tools. Um, in my house... I try to keep myself away from DIY projects, uh, and simply because usually I don't have the right tools to do it. If you have the right tools to do things in your house, you almost always can accomplish it uh, pretty expeditiously. The problem is, too many times I find myself in a project at home where I don't have the right tools. And in the same way, you often find yourself in an unexpected time uh, that God has put in your life that may be his providential way of putting you in line with his will, but yet you don't have the right tools in place, and so you find it in difficult or impossible to actually walk in that will because you simply don't have to, some tools. I'm going to give you a few tools this morning, two in particularly, a yes and a no. Uh, the yes tool is the kind of yes that I'm going to say, I'm putting my yes on the table no matter what God says. And you need to do this. This is something that any faithful follower of God is going to do in their life. I'm going to put my yes on the table. My yes is going to be ready to go. Uh, regardless of the implications, right? regardless of the applications, I'm going to say yes. You see already in the life of Abraham, we talked about earlier, who had a family to consider, who obviously had a job. He was making money somehow. Had all the things that you and I would feel the same pressure when it comes to considering God's plan and God's will, uh, he had the same things to consider. Uh, Joseph had much to consider. What, is my friend, what are my friends going to think about me when I tell them that my, my wife is pregnant by the Holy Spirit? You know, Like, you try that with your friends and, and see what they're going to think about you. I mean, Joseph had a, had a lot of concerns, like his reputation. Uh, what am I going to do with this woman who seems like she's betrayed my trust and, and committed adultery? Uh, you know, what, what am I to do in the midst of that? I have practical issues in my life that if I do what God tells me to do, these things are questions. And these are real concerns, and I've, got to, and I've got to do something with them. Now, does that not sound like a lot the way that you think in your life when something like that, when something pops up? When things in your life pop up, you immediately go to, I, I believe this is God's calling me to, but, or I've even received counsel that this is what God's telling me to do, but I have this, and I have this, and I have this, and I have this to think about. The problem is, is we don't have any positive accounts in Scripture of God using those kind of people who consider their things as more important, significant, and more uh, important than God's will. That's just the fact that we see in, in Scripture. So we got to make sure that we have our yes ready to go. Because, listen, Jesus says it very clearly. Seek first, first, the kingdom of God. And his righteousness. And all of these other things will be taken care of. 
right? And he talks about your basic needs, which is always what you're concerned about. I got to take care of my family. I got to take care of my, I got to have, I got to have a place to live. I got to have things to eat. All things that Jesus promises to take care of in the life of faithful saints. But too many times we like to flip those over and we like to say things instead. Well, God, I know this is what this says, but the implications are I've got to take care of all these things. No, the Bible says the implications are you seek the kingdom of God. He's going to take care of the practical application. You have a simple task of saying yes, having your yes on the table. Now, if you have your yes on your left, you need to have your no in the right hand. Okay? And your no is simply this. You have to be like Paul and his companions. You have to say no to your original plans. And too many times you have your own plans, you have the own things you want to do in your life, and yet when an unexpected event happens and it's God moving you a different direction, you have to be willing to say no to your original plans. If Paul wouldn't have said no to his original plans, they would have sat in Bithynia. Lydia wouldn't have got saved. The church in Philippi wouldn't have got founded, or at least not by Paul, which is also called the providence of God when it comes to walking in the will of God. You're right, and you are theologically correct to assert things like God will do it. Yes, he will. And a shame that you don't want to be the instrument that God does it through. That's a whole other sermon now, isn't it? The point being, God is going to do what God's going to do, and God has chosen to use people to do those very things. And so for you and I, to have our no on the table means this. I want God to use me, right? And that's not selfish, right? That isn't me being all about me and isocentric. This is saying God says he's going to use people to do his will, and why not me? Why don't, why don't I get to be the tool that God would use to do his will? And particularly when unexpected events happen in your life, it should be for you a confirmation that God does want to use you. But what you have to do is say, no to what you were planning before. So many people aren't being used by God simply because they are choosing not to be used by God. And we've got to be a church and a people who are used by God simply because we have our yes on the table for him and our no on the table for us. But I get it because I know the question, the question is, it sounds easy to preach about, but how do I know if it's God's will? Very good question. Okay, Because when it comes to planning for God's unexpected events. We have to have some, some plans, some processes to know uh, when to say yes and to how we go about saying yes to God's plan. And, and the good news is it's in the text of Scripture, so I really don't have to like, try to force you to believe something. I'm just going to take you to the text, and I'm going to let it tell us what to do. So go ahead and look at verse 20. Verse 20, Matthew 1, verse 20. But as Joseph considered these things, I love it, his plan, right? I'm going to divorce her quietly because it's, and you have to understand, he wasn't doing anything wrong. The Bible teaches, right? The Old Testament teaches that he's allowed to divorce his wife if he finds out that she's in adultery. Now, we can't expect him to know that it wasn't at this point. And so he was well within his biblical reality to say, I'm going to divorce you. He could do it publicly. He wanted to do it privately because he was a just man. Now, as he was considering these things, his plan... Behold, an angel of the Lord. In Greek, that's, that's angelos, which is messenger, right? A messenger of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, uh, saying, Joseph, son of David, which should be something you underline in your text because that does give you a clue into God's will in this unexpected event. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. See, here's something to remember. Uh, it was obviously, we look at the whole genealogy, uh, the son of David was a very common uh, name and title given throughout the Old Testament, through the prophets. Uh, Joseph wasn't dumb and ignorant to the idea that he was a son of David. I mean, this was very common. And so, so David knew that, hey, there are prophecies that do state, that do say that whatever is coming and whoever's supposed to sit on this throne does come through my line. And so you're already kind of understanding how can we begin understanding and knowing when to say yes. Well, obviously, when the angel says, you're the son of David, he, he goes back to the Davidic covenant. Right? I understand this is part of the promise of God. So whatever you're about to say uh, seems like it's coming from Scripture, but let's make sure. Do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. All right, that's big news. That's quite, quite the unexpected event in Joseph's life. Uh, and so he's, he says, I'm listening. Uh, verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name 
Jesus. Now, again, if you haven't been here throughout the last two series, you need to understand how important it is that they named him Jesus. Jesus is the Hebrew for Yeshua or that Yahweh saves. And so that's actually why when you look at verse 21, it says, you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. So it's like, well, yeah, because that's what the name Jesus means. And so if you're wondering why there's a comma and a definition out beside it, that's why, because Jesus is Yahweh saves. Now, Joseph continues to say, well, I'm listening because he hasn't heard something really important and necessary for you to understand whether or not something is God's will or not. And Joseph is still waiting to hear those words. And here's, what it, here's where, he, where he finds it. Verse 22. Here's what the angel said. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the vir- or this was confirmed through the writer of Matthew. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel which means God with us. See, David uh, had to understand something very importantly. I don't care if an angel is telling me this. I don't care if my mother is telling me this. I need to make sure that God's word is saying this. And so we see that in the text that Matthew is saying, hey, the angel didn't just say this. Scripture testifies to this. So we can know things are in the will of God and unexpected events are in the will of God when they line up with biblical revelation. You see, Joseph being a son of David, and so he knew that the heir of the throne of the Davidic covenant was given to his line. And he understands that in Isaiah chapter 7, there is a prophecy of a coming king who will be born of a virgin. And he will be born and his name shall be Emmanuel. He knew that. That corresponds with his understanding of biblical revelation. And all the angel did was confirm that through appearing before him and giving him wisdom. Do you see that? I want you to see that. We've got to make sure that we understand that it wasn't just through some vision that Joseph understood that this is what I'm supposed to do. It was from quoting the Bible in Isaiah 7 that said, Behold, Mary, which is the the woman now, is going to conceive and she's going to have a son. And it's going to be from the Holy Spirit. And they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, we need to talk a little side, little side stage moment. We talk about the virgin conception because it is, in our culture, uh, a debated topic, I guess. A lot of different people have backgrounds in what you believe about the virgin conception. What, uh, if you're a Catholic, you come from a Catholic background. Uh, we gotta, all we want to do is make sure, here's what the Bible says. It had to be a virgin conception. We at least have to know that much. right? It had to be a virgin conception. Uh, and that's why we hold to the fact that Joseph didn't hide an unplanned pregnancy with her. They never came together. It actually says this in the text. It had to be a virgin conception, even prophetically from the Old Testament. Why? Simply one, because God had promised it already. We see it in Isaiah 7. The virgin shall conceive. Right? There's already my, my proof of saying... This couldn't just be you and me getting together, uh, me and my wife having a child, and this is the one. Right? It had to be a virgin birth, and we'll get to why. Uh, the simple reason, secondly, is that man had nothing to do with their own salvation. And that's what you have to understand in the doctrine of the virgin birth. Uh, if you don't know how babies are born, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> we have to understand that the Davidic line happened because of the seed of the line of David uh, and the egg of, of their wives. And they were able to have a line uh, for them. That's what you see throughout the whole Old Testament is so-and-so had a son, so-and-so had a son, so-and-so had a son. Well, there's a problem that we see in Genesis 3.15 that God is trying to solve, and I shouldn't say trying, God is going to solve in Genesis 3.15. Remember, we talked about this about uh, two months ago. Genesis 3.15. Here's what happens. The fall of man, Adam and Eve's sin. Uh, God is condemning uh, uh, Satan and giving consequences to Adam and Eve. And this is what he says to the serpent. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring, which is Hebrew for seed, right? Between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise your heel. This is called the uh, Proto-Evangelium, right? The first gospel. So this verse is called the first gospel. And it is simply this, that God had promised to the serpent and to the woman that there is coming a seed. And this seed is coming from who? What does it say right there? Her. And you and the woman. And it's going to be her seed. That's why offspring can be a little, uh, it can give you a misconception. It means her seed. It's coming from her. Now, this seed that's coming from her will bruise your head, which if you don't know, when you get knocked in the head, it's a much more fatal blow than uh, what's going to happen to the seed of woman, which is 
their heel will be bruised. And so you have these two uh, separate uh, wounds that are going to happen. Uh, a head wound to the serpent and a heel wound to the seed of the woman. Right? One is fatal, one is just painful. And so we see that they're awaiting the fulfillment and we see that throughout Scripture uh, because even in Galatians 4.4, 4, we see this. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of woman. Right? We already see that again, correct? So we see that the seed had to come from woman and, and, and it would be that his heel would be bruised and him and his heel bruising would bruise the head of the serpent. Now, you understand your Bible a little bit. You now understand as Jesus was crucified on the cross, his heel was bruised. That is, that he would be wounded, but it would not prove to be fatal. And that is why we also see in the Proto-Evangelium of Genesis 3.15, the fulfillment of that at the resurrection of Christ. Right? The proof is in the pudding in the sense that when Jesus was resurrected, it, it proved to be a heel bruise. It wasn't a head bruise. It wasn't a fatal blow that ended in death because he was resurrected. And so the seed of the woman in Christ became the truth of the gospel that he will, he will die and he will be resurrected. And then the same promise that God had given to the serpent is that your head would be wounded, that you would have a wound that would not be healed and you would not be able to recover from. And when Jesus resurrected from the dead, he defeated Satan, death, sin for the world. And not only that, that's only partially fulfillment of the head wound. In Revelation, it teaches us that that serpent will be thrown down into the abyss and eternally will be separated from God under his wrath and under his judgment. Utter destruction. Head wound. So you see the Proto-Evangelium in Genesis 3.15 is, is the, the proof of what people were looking forward to in the coming Messiah. Now, we see that. Why did it have to be, and back to the point, why did it have to be the woman? 1 Corinthians 5.22, 1 Corinthians 15.22. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ shall all be made alive. So we see there's, there's a problem, and that's why you have to understand Genesis or Matthew 1.18 as the new creation. This is the genesis of Christ. This is the new creation because the federal head that is Adam in Genesis 1 became faulty. He sinned, and everyone after him that was born was born from his seed. And so everyone after him could not have been born righteous because they were all under the federal head of Adam, which means they all were sinful. And so this is why it couldn't have just been an offspring of Adam, of Seth, of Abraham, all the way down to David or Joseph, simply because we are born sinful, right? We're not sinful when we sin. We're born that way. And so there had to be a way for the Davidic heir, the, the savior of the world, to be born in a way where they weren't born into the sin. And the only way that could have ever happened is if there wasn't a seed of man involved in the conception. Therefore, Jesus was able to be the savior because he was not born in sin, but yet he was born under the law. Did you see that? Do you see what God just did? And that's why you have to understand the virgin conception is about Christ. This isn't about Mary, right? This isn't about Mary's perpetual virginity. This isn't about, uh, this isn't about immaculate conception being the fact that Mary was conceived miraculously. This is about Jesus. This is about him fulfilling the, the prophecies and the promises of the Old Testament. Now, Then something else happens in verse 23 that you could be concerned with if you're a student of the text. And it says in verse 23 that he shall be called Emmanuel. Well, number one, he's already given two names. He's going to be called Jesus, and they're going to call him Emmanuel. Which one are we going to call him? And then you start reading the Gospels, and you see, well, it looks like they call him Jesus all the time, but they never call him Emmanuel. That's a problem with predictive prophecy, because if you don't understand what this means, you're going to be left with the fact that the predictive prophecy said they're going to call him Emmanuel, and they're not calling him Emmanuel, which means either that prophecy is wrong, or I got it all wrong. And so I have to look at the text and say, okay, what does it mean? And I love it, because he tells you. It literally says, well, in which means, God with us. Though Jesus was never called Emmanuel, you have to understand that ontologically he was Emmanuel. In his existence, in his incarnation, he was God with us. Right? The same way that you can call me man and Hayden. You see what I'm saying? Because I am a man, 
but my name is Hayden. In the same way, his name was Jesus, and he was Emmanuel. He was God with us. So he is both fulfilling both prophecies and the fact that they, his name is Jesus, and he would also be called Emmanuel, God with us. And so, as we look at the text, as we're looking at the angel, the messenger of the Lord, appearing to Joseph, confirming what has already been said in the prophets in the Old Testament, although adding some special revelation that declared the message of God, and that's what I want you to see here, is the difference between the fact that God didn't just take the messengers, or sorry, Joseph didn't just take the word of the angel. He took the word of Scripture to be the truth. And that's what I want you to put on point number two. You need to seek counsel from God's word. It's not just about who you hear it from. It's about where you hear it from. And I want you to understand, and I love this, because it's like the angel wasn't the arbiter of truth in this situation. The angel wasn't the arbiter of truth. The angel was the carrier of the truth that come from God's word. Can I show you another place where the New Testament writers say the exact same thing? Flip to Galatians 1. Galatians 1. New Testament, Galatians 1. This is Paul to the church in Galatia. Did I say 8-1? 1-8. One? One, I may be a little dyslexic too. Galatians 1-8. Verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. I mean, Paul is making it very clear that the arbiter of truth isn't the heavenly hosts. The arbiter of truth isn't the person who comes up to you and says, I have a word from the Lord for you. The arbiter of truth is found squarely and solely in the word of God. And even the angel of the Lord that we see coming to Joseph was just a confirmation of what Scripture had already said. And that is why it's important that if we are in unexpected events in our lives, we must and we have to be sure that we are seeking counsel from God's Word and not just waiting for a sign or waiting for an angel to come to me in a dream because it was never about that anyway. It was always about God's Word. It was always about even the, the heavenly beings coming to confirm what Scripture has already said. The good news for you and I is we have a closed canon. That means this, there is no more special revelation. You see, the angel had to come to Joseph and had to come to Mary because there had yet been the confirmation of how it was going to happen and who it was going to happen with. And so that needed to happen in Scripture to have it declared. And now we have it in Scripture. It's all closed because Jesus has been resurrected, or died, been resurrected. The church has been founded. We now have the revelation of the last things that are to happen, puts the capstone on the Bible. We have all the biblical revelation we need. So I understand that if God is saying anything to you and God is saying anything to me, he's saying it right here. Which you even see that in Scripture. Even before the canon was closed, you still see angels saying, this is just what the Bible says. And what we're going to make sure we're saying, hey, this is what the Bible says. This is what we're going to do. Because even the angels in heaven were not exempt from Scripture, from the Word of God, and conveying that message. So, therefore, we need to seek counsel from God's Word. Two ways to do that. Number one, you need to use the Bible. Right? I have stored your Word in my heart that I may not sin against you. Right? There's your application. If I want to follow the Lord, I have to know the Word of God. I have to be versed in it. I have to know it. I have to... Preach it to myself. I've got to make sure that I know God's word so I know that when something unexpected does happen, I understand what God's word is saying so I can walk in it. And secondly, you need to use wise, godly people. Use wise, godly people. And this is important because wise, godly people are simply going to do one thing. You, you tell them you have a problem and they're going to say, what does the Bible say about that? Right? That's what a wise, godly person is going to do. Every single time you have a question, they're simply going to respond with, what does the Bible say about that? And maybe you trust in them because they have uh, an ability that is higher than yours to be able to understand and know God's word, which is fine. As long as when you have wise, godly people in your life, they're simply saying, what does God's word say about that? Because let me tell you, let me tell you why. We are so prone in our life to say things like, well, the Bible doesn't have a lot to say about the situation I'm dealing with. Or I don't know, how to, I, don't, I don't believe that the Bible speaks to this. Listen, if the Bible wasn't going to speak to anything, it was going to be to two teenagers living in the first century 
where he just found out that his fiance just said that they were having a baby that God gave her. Right? If there is a place that maybe scripture wouldn't answer, it's going to be that unique situation that has never happened and never will happen again. But if anyone had an exception to what God may or not have been able to apply his word to, it would have been that. But yet we still see in that particular situation, God had an exact will for their life. And in the same way, we read in 1 Peter that all things, we have all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. So that means this, everything that pertains to life, which is pretty much everything, right? And godliness, which is also our whole lives, is afforded to us by the knowledge of God. And where do we receive the knowledge of God? Right here. Everything you need in your life can be found through God's word and its counsel. And the best ways you're going to do that, you get to know God's word and find good, wise, godly counselors, people that you can trust, people that you know who are just going to tell you what the Bible says. Because it's not an angel or a vision that's going to give me what I want. It's going to be God's word. Hmm. Come on. All right. And, and here's what, even with Joseph, even in our, on our, our own lives, is that God's revelation and God's word is simply supposed to produce a response in you. And we see that even as the angel comes to Joseph. The angel didn't come to Joseph to give him just some more knowledge to put in his head. The angel didn't come to Joseph and say, hey, uh, you just need to know some more information, and then don't do just, that's just, it's good for here. But the problem is, so many times when you come to church and people come to church, they come to, to fill this, but not to change this and this. But the problem is, Scripture teaches us everything that it teaches us for practical application. Every, every, all theology is practical theology. Right? There is nothing theological in Scripture that doesn't inform the way that you live, the way that you think, and the way that you act. Everything in Scripture informs for you and I to live out. And so we've got to make sure that we don't just come and seek counsel from God's Word, and we don't just receive the truth of God's Word simply just to have it here. Like that's, not what the, that's not what Scripture does. That's not what the church is for. As a matter of fact, if the church was just to fill your mind with uh, facts, we could just do all this online and we don't have to be here. But the reality of it, the church is far more than that. God's word does far more than just fills your mind with facts. It fills you with life change in Christ through the Holy Spirit to the glory of God. But all that said, Scripture is meant to produce a response. Right? Biblical counsel shouldn't remain intellectual. It should become practical. And I want to show you that even in the life of Joseph. Look at verse 24. I mean, this is exactly what Joseph did, which is why I think Joseph is a fantastic example of the kind of life we ought to live, even in unexpected situations. When Joseph woke from his sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. I want you to notice the immediacy of Joseph following God's word. And he was asleep. He didn't, he didn't wake up and stretch. He didn't go get an egg for breakfast. Right? He didn't go exercise first. Right? He got up. And he did what he was told from the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the messenger of God. And he did it. And therefore, he took his wife. But, verse 25, knew her not until she had given birth to a son. This is another side post with the perpetual virginity of Mary. Here it is, verse 25. But knew her not. So he took her as his wife, which is important because it's going to teach you two things as a Christian. Number one... The knew her not proves the fact that Jesus or that Joseph didn't sleep with Mary before they had the baby. So there is no question of whether or not this was a, a cover-up pregnancy. But also that she was never a perpetual virgin. That literally, after she had Jesus, they then came together. And we, we see that not only in this text, but even in Mark 6.3, when uh, the text talks about Mary and her sons and daughters, Jesus' brothers and sisters. So we see, even in that, uh, the Catholic belief of a perpetual virginity is not anywhere found in Scripture. That's uh, something that has come throughout history that isn't in the text of Scripture. As a matter of fact, the text of Scripture testifies otherwise. As a matter of fact, her and Joseph had a really good godly marriage that was very sexually active, and they had lots of fruitful, they had, bore lots of fruit and had a lot of children which is what God would want every marriage to look like. Hmm. 
Come on. All right. All right. He did what the angel had said. He, he went home, took his wife, uh, and then this is what he did. He called his name Jesus. This is important. It's an important aspect of, being, of, of this being in the, the point of view of Joseph, simply because of this. One, uh, Joseph is the line of David. Uh, anyone who wants to be in the line of David through Joseph has to be the son of Joseph. Now, here's how he became a son, and this is testified through history and in Scripture, is that by naming the child and taking him made him legally Joseph's son. So although not a son by biology, he was a son because he named him and he brought him into his home. Isaiah 43 Verse 1, this says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, you are mine. Did you see that? You're mine, why? Because I named you, right? You're mine, I named you. In the same concept, in the first century, you took your son because you named him. That made him legally yours. You named him. Luke says on the eighth day after circumcision, they named him Jesus. He took him as his son. So therefore, Joseph's obedience to God made Jesus the heir of the throne of the Davidic covenant. Come on, you can't make this stuff up, guys. All right. And it was this immediate obedience. And I want to point you back to verse 24. When he woke up, he did as he was commanded by the word of God. And it was the immediate obedience of of Joseph to God's will, even in the midst of uncertainty, that allowed Joseph to be the conduit, right? The conduit of God's mercy and grace to a lost world. You got to see that. Like Joseph, because of his obedience, he became not the reason, right? He didn't become the, he didn't become the, he wasn't an end of himself. It wasn't all about Joseph. This wasn't about him at all. This was about Jesus. But he got to be an instrument, a conduit, he got to be the way in which the mercy and grace of God flowed through him, allowed him to, he took the son, Jesus, and who was then the answer to the problem of sin and despair and wickedness in our world simply because Joseph did this. It's point number three. He strove for immediate obedience. Well, we need to strive for immediate obedience. We've got to be the kind of people who aren't going to just simply sit and uh, you know, I, I know, here's what God's word says. I know it said it. I'm confident it's saying my counselors in my life have told me this is God's will, but I'm still just sitting here not doing anything. I mean, that's not at all uh, what, what God has in mind for, for the Christian. We have to strive for immediate obedience. Uh, last scripture I'd love you to, to look at, Luke 11. Luke 11, verse 27 and 28 this uh, scripture ties very well into the, the virgin birth and the birth of Jesus through Mary. Luke eleven twenty seven says this, And as Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and the breast at which you nursed. I mean, that's all, all about. They're trying to exalt Mary in the situation, even in the first century. Uh, they're trying to exalt Mary uh, and, and not focus on the very thing that Jesus wanted them to focus on. Because Jesus was quick to correct them, and he said this, Blessed, rather, are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Right? This, is, this is for, for people, and, and I know like, I'm just bashing on the Catholic, the Catholic Church, but uh, it isn't about being like Mary. This isn't about being, oh, I wish I was Mary, if I just could have been Mary, right? if I just could have been David. Right? If I just, this isn't about who you could have been. And Jesus is even saying, blessed isn't the, the person who got to do this. Blessed are the people now who hear the word of God and keep it. Right? Blessed are all of us now who, when an unexpected event happens, we seek counsel from God's word and wise counselors, and then we strive for immediate obedience. Blessed are those people. But too many times we're unwilling to be blessed by the doing of our life simply because we don't want to decide. Simply because we'd rather look back and say, man, how lucky are those people in the Bible who got to do these great things that God had planned for them. How lucky and blessed are we to have the full revelation of God so we know whether or not we can do something for the glory of God or not. That's the life that we get to live, and sometimes we just simply won't do it. And then we sit and we ask ourselves, why don't I feel used by God? Why don't I feel like I'm doing the will of God? Like What I've loved about being here and being the pastor of this church is, you know, I've been able to lead tons of people to Christ. Like, not me, but Christ, right? And over again, as we keep doing it, more people are coming to me and say, hey, I shared the gospel with somebody, and they led somebody to Christ. 
Hey, I shared the gospel with somebody, and they came to Christ. Hey, this person came to Christ. Hey, this person, their marriage is falling apart. We met with them, and they're doing so much better. Is that not the will of God, right, that those things would be happening? And so I know those things are the will of God. I know God wants them. Scripture testifies to them, want them. And all I'm trying to do is create patterns and rhythms in my life that, that create opportunity for that. And God often does that, especially when you're not in his will, unexpected events in your life that put you back into that place. Because so many of us right now have so much going on in your life. You have so many practical things going on in your life. You're not even entertaining the idea of doing God's will because your life is so cramped packed with all these other things, all of your own plans. And so you have got to allow God to use unexpected events in your life to make sure that you are doing the will of God. And that is the good news of the gospel, that your father doesn't leave you alone. He doesn't leave you as orphans. He doesn't leave you in your own mess. He takes you out of that and puts you in his best. And that's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news that we have as we've been saved. We're not left here as orphans. Now, the best way you can strive for immediate obedience is simply this. Uh, well, the first part is hear the word and keep it. That's what the scripture says in it, right? Hear the word and keep it. Whenever you hear the word of God, immediately obey it, right? We don't have to sit and consider it. We're going to get up. We're going to go do it just like Joseph did. Uh, the second thing is don't use practical excuses to validate your delayed obedience. Don't use practical excuses to delay your immediate obedience. I've been talking about this all throughout the sermon, but we are so quick to use all the things in our life as the rationale and the reason why we don't do things for the Lord. Well, you know, my, I, have, I have too many kids. I have kids, i got to figure out what they're doing. They have so much going on this week, right? Uh, you know, my, my spouse, I'm going to talk to them about it. Uh, with no inclination of truly talking to them about it and coming to a godly conclusion about how you can do more of the will of God. Uh, or using, and I'm saying practical excuses, things like, well, you know, I don't feel good. I'm sick. I just don't think I want to be there. It's like, are you sick? As my mother said, are you bleeding? Are you throwing up? Do you have a fever? Okay. If not, you're going to school. Okay. Uh, same concept, right? I mean, are you bleeding? Are you, are you have a fever? Are you throwing up? Like, if not, you need to be going, right? You need to, we need to be doing the Lord's thing. I'm not going to use excuses, right? Even when culture gives me the benefit of the doubt, and this is as Christians, we can't be nominal, like in name only, right? The problem with nominal Christianity is simply if people give you the nod of the benefit of the doubt of why you're not doing something, you take it and you, you say, well, I was saved from that one. I didn't have to do that one. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches us that we don't get the benefit of the doubt by not following Christ. We just don't. There is no benefit of the doubt for you and me to not do God's will. As a matter of fact, uh, the, God's word tells that every one of us are going to stand before God one day and give an account for every single thing that we've done. There is no benefit of the doubt for the things that you do and don't do. As a matter of fact, there's going to be an account for everything that you do and don't do. And so we can't use practical excuses in our lives to delay the obedience that God requires. Remember, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all the practical things, which is the context of the scripture, not your new car, right? Not your new 401k that has a billion dollars in it. No, no. You're, you're going to you're have shelter, you're going to have food, and you're going to have clothing. Seek first the kingdom of God, right? The, the, the idea isn't to delay my obedience because of practical things. It's actually to expedite my obedience knowing that God's going to take care of the practical things. Right? That's why we have to strive for immediate obedience, in my life, I've seen that play out in so many ways. It's just understanding, hey, if you would just be bold enough to go do what God wants you to do, he's going to take care of the things behind. And what I want to do in our church is not be the kind of pastor that has to say, you got to do these things. you got to do these things. I want to be the kind of pastor that says, don't you want to do these things? Don't you want to be used by God? Don't you want to be an instrument for the mercy and grace of God going out into our community? I don't want to be the kind of pastor who says, you don't want to do this. Let me, let me, try, to help, let me try to help you figure out how to want to do it. I, I want to grow in your heart a passion for the word of God and a love for God and a love for people that when you hear this, you're just going to say, that's me. I want to do that. Right? That's what I want to do, and that's who I want to be. And all I'm saying is this is what the Word of God says. If you want to be that kind of person, you got to be willing to plan for the unexpected events. Right? you got to be willing to seek counsel from God's Word. And you got to know it. But you also got to know some people who love the Lord and know His Word who can kind of speak into your life using Scripture. And then you got to say, all right, I'm going to do it. But what about your kids? They're going to come with me, right? What about your spouse? They love me, okay? Uh, you know, what about my house? It's going to burn up someday anyway. The Bible says it, right? You know, it's like, it, you see what I'm saying? God said, he's going to take care of all those things. But you, you hear the word of God and keep it. Amen? 
All right. Hey, this morning we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And so uh, our ushers are going to uh, bring the elements forward. But as they do, I want you to turn to 1 Corinthians 11. Turn to 1 Corinthians 11. When we're talking about keeping God, hearing God's word and keeping it, this is a really great practical application already in our morning. As we look at Paul as he is uh, responding to and instructing the Corinthian church on how to take the Lord's Supper. He's com- he, he was commending them on some things. But in verse 17, here's what he says. But in the following instruction, I do not commend you. So there's already some trouble happening. I do not commend you because when you come together, this is a, uh, at least there is, there is some views, which I, am, I, I believe. Right? When they use the word come together, it was in a particular context. It wasn't just come together randomly. The come together is for the Lord's Supper. And so the context here is Lord's Supper. When we come together, that was a term describing the Lord's Supper. When you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, that is to take the Lord's Supper, like when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So we're not saying that conflict is bad. We're just saying, how are we going to deal with that conflict? How are we living in it as Christians? Verse 20, when you come together, that is for the Lord's Supper, it is not for the Lord's Supper that you eat. And he's saying this, you think you're coming together for the Lord's Supper, but you're actually not. As a matter of fact, this is what it's saying. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What does that sound like? Sounds like a group of people who are just doing whatever they want to do, doesn't it? It's a, it's a group of people who are just saying, you know what, I'm hungry, I'm going to eat. I'm thirsty, I'm going to get drunk. Right? I'm, and then there's people who don't have anything. He goes hungry. And in verse 22, he says, What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? Obviously, you already see the disposition of these people who come together to take the Lord's Supper. Their concern isn't for the person to their left and the person to their right and the person across from the table. That is not their concern at all. Their concern is about them. The concern is getting what they want, which at the end of the day, you have to understand the Lord's Supper represents Christ's death for us which is the definition of considering others as more significant than ourselves. And so Paul is even saying, if you can't sit and take the Lord's Supper and consider others as more significant than you, you you don't need to take the Lord's Supper. And we're going to get to that application. But he's saying you have to make sure that you are examining yourself. And this is what it says. He says this, do you despise the church and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? He says, no, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Which is a point to make here. Listen to this point. For as often as you come together as a church, as people who have said, I have turned from my sins and I have placed my trust in the Christ, that's why I'm participating in this supper together, this Lord's Supper, this, uh, well, this sign, right? This uh, you and I doing a, a remembrance of Christ. We are doing this because we are proclaiming the Lord's death until he comes. Now, We're going to get there. I want you to hold on to that verse. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. It's already getting you to examine yourself. If you're not going to take this in a worthy manner, you're going to be guilty concerning the body and blood of Christ. You'll be just as guilty as those who hung him on the cross. Let a person examine themselves. Then, so eat the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body and eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is, if you want to examine yourself to say, hey, you've been walking in the will of the Lord. Have you been considering the Lord in your life? Have you been submitting to the will of the Lord? Right? Have you been a part of the fellowship of believers? Do you count and consider those who sit to your left and to your right, brothers and sisters in Christ that you're living with and fellowshipping and communing with? I mean, do you consider these people those people in your life? This is what it's saying. You need to examine yourself and eat the bread and drink the cup accordingly. If you don't, you're drinking judgment on yourself. Verse 30. This is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. Right? 
that the Bible says this, right? That that's, that's the seriousness in which the Spirit of God takes the communion of the saints, the Lord's Supper. Right? That you and I are like, listen, Paul's saying, some of you have been weak, some of you are ill, and some of you are dying because you come in here and you make it about you and you're not making it about the Lord. You're not, you're not, eating, you're not eating as remembering the Lord and eating within the fellowship of the believers and the love and care. Like some of you are taking communion, but yet you hate your neighbor. Some of you are taking communion, but you won't even talk to the person in the back of the room. Like some of you, you, you don't even, you talk behind the back of the church when you're out in public. I'm hoping no one does that, but if you do. But you come in here and then you take communion. That is not in the spirit of the Lord. That is not what God commands us to do. Now, when we examine ourselves, then we say in verse 31, but if we judge ourselves truly, which is good, right? You need to sit and examine yourself. As a matter of fact, Scripture tells you, judge yourself. Judge yourselves. And if you judge yourselves truly, you would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give direction when I come. It's simply this. I don't want you to do the Lord's Supper simply because it's just something that we do. You need to understand that the Lord's Supper uh, is a very real memorial of what Christ had done. And I love there are two ordinances that Christ has given you and I in the church baptism, and the Lord's Supper. And they are both inextricably linked to one another. Your baptism signifies your close association and union with Christ and his church. And you participating in the Lord's Supper is you participating in the death of Christ in communion with one another. Do you see why you, like, it doesn't make sense to be baptized privately? It doesn't make sense to go home and take communion by yourself because it was never about you and yourself. It was about God's people. And so you've got to make sure that you are examining your life to make sure when it comes to this family right here, you're living in right relationship with God and you're living in right relationship with the people around you. And then, and only then, ought you take the Lord's Supper so that, according to Scripture, you may not be judged, that you may not become weak or ill or even have died, but that you would judge yourself, examine your own life to make sure that in this day that you would be worthy to take the Lord's Supper. Now, that sounds, may sound harsh, but here's what it does in God's great providence and love for us. This is a moment for you, and in no other way you would have been able to come to this conclusion. If you're one of those who say, maybe today I can't take the Lord's Supper. There was no other opportunity up until this point where you would have been able to say something like this. I need to get my life right. Like, I, if I can't even take the memorial cup and bread of Jesus right now because my life is so messed up and in sin, then this is my heart check and my life check to say, I can't do this. And if I can't even take in the memorial bread of Christ, what does that mean about my life? What does that mean about my faith? So this is God's way of, in our church, creating patterns of conviction and repentance and redemption, even in our lives here. So I want to do that for a moment. As a piano is playing, I want you to take a couple of minutes, and I want you to examine yourself. I want you to pray. And if you have things you need to repent of, if you have things you need to restore in your life, in relationship with anyone in here, in our church, in your life, you and your relationship with God, that you would pray and you would spend time now considering how you can begin walking in faith in those areas, restoring them, reconciling those relationships before you ever even consider taking the elements of the God who came to reconcile all people to himself. So before we do the remembrance of what Christ has done, let's examine ourselves for a moment. If, if in your prayer and in your self-examination, not, not according to your own, I'm not saying according to your own uh, matrix of whether or not that you're worthy or not, but according to Scripture, right? If, if you understand that uh, since the last time we've taken this Lord's Supper, that you've been walking with Christ, right? that you've been living in right relationship with those around you, right? And I'm not talking about if you if you sinned, if you messed up, if you tripped up one time. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the spirit of the Lord's Supper, that you're living in a right relationship with God and one another. Right? And you consider others more significant than yourself. That you're living like Christ. Not perfectly, but under the reality of when which we're supposed to take this in a worthy manner. If you've, in your prayer and in your self-examination, have found that you have been following Christ, you've been living in a right relationship with those in your church, family, 
I would invite you now to take of the elements of the Lord's Supper. And if you're one of those, maybe you're sitting here and you didn't take it because you, you understand that you haven't been living in a right relationship with the Lord, you haven't been living in a right relationship with one another, uh, and you've examined yourself and you've said that this isn't the time to take the Lord's Supper, I want to encourage you, set up a meeting with me. love to talk with you. love to talk through life. love to talk through uh, whatever that we can do to make sure that in Christ, when we do these things, these Lord's Suppers, that we would find ourselves not worthy in and of ourselves, but we'd find ourselves simply living like Christ, that we could take part in this memorial meal. Let's pray. God, uh, what a heavy service, uh, but I pray there's a heaviness with, with a great amount of joy that we both talk about the birth of the Savior of the world, and then we move even to his, his death and resurrection in the Lord's Supper, that we understand that it was both his, his birth and his death that, that, that divides history, that we look at and we understand God had been done for for our reconciliation, that as we saw the birth of Christ, we only see it in light of the death of Christ, that he was a perfect spotless lamb without blemish who lived under the law perfectly, the seed of woman, that he would come and be a curse for thus, for thus says in your word, curses everyone who hangs on a cross, and that God, through his wounds, we are healed and as we take, we've taken of this supper, I pray, God, that we would be re- remembered, even in our own lives, that our lives here are important, that you have a will for our lives, that you ask us to, to walk in Christ's likeness, God, in right relationship with you and our devotion to you and right relationship with others around us, that we are committed to one another, to love and care for one another, as your word makes clear. So I pray even as we finish in a time of praise to you, God, that we would leave today in remembrance of all that you've done. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.